Welcome to Recloseted Radio. This is a podcast for sustainable fashion conversations. Whether you're a consumer or a sustainable fashion brand owner, we have a lot of resources just for you. I'm your host, Selena Ho, and I promise to support you and equip you with the knowledge to help right the harmful fashion industry. Without any further ado, let's get into it. Welcome back to Recloseted Radio, everyone. In today's episode, I'm so excited because I'm joined by Brianna, and she's the founder of Enact. And we met, actually, I think it was either last week or a couple weeks ago. The weeks are all blurring together now. (laughs) Um, But we both met as we spoke on a panel hosted by Green Story, where we were talking about the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals and how it relates to the fashion industry. And on that panel, Brianna had so many words of wisdom to share. So I wanted to invite her onto the podcast today because I felt like we would all learn a lot from her. So welcome, Brianna. Yes, thank you so much for having me. And I hear you. I was like, was that? La-? I think it was last week, which feels like it was last month that we connected. <laughs> but um, yeah, super excited um, to be here and talking about the UN goals. And it's kind of a rare thing. Um, I would say most people, you know, aren't really interested in having these conversations. So I'm really excited to hear. Yeah, of course. And to kick things off, do you want to tell everyone a little bit about your background, how you got to starting a brand, kind of just that whole journey leading up to it? Sure. So my background is, I guess, a little not traditional in the textile industry. I didn't go to fashion school or design school, and I really didn't expect to end up in the industry. But I studied international business, and I had a minor in human rights. And so I was always really fascinated by the connection of uh, the supply chain and people on the planet and what corporations' responsibilities were in regards to how they were making their product and what they were doing with it when they were done. And so I found out about corporate social responsibility my senior year in college, really more so about the oil industry and just how it had really displaced so many indigenous people around the world and how that process had worked. And so it just always stuck in the back of my mind. And when I graduated college, I uh, moved to Uganda. I worked on the Northern Uganda, South Sudanese border with a nonprofit. And then I just, you know, really had a chance to take a step back and kind of get out of the U.S. culture and get to see a lot of other industries and, and the impact that they have, specifically in East Africa. And then I made the decision to move back home um, to DC at the time. And when I was working there, I really thought, you know, what has the greatest impact in this ecosystem we're in? You have nonprofits, you have for-profits, your private sector, you have the government, where can, you know, you make a difference? And so I moved back into that for-profit private sector CSR mindset. And at the time, Under Armour was recruiting they were growing at, I think, 30% a year, which looking back is just insane. And they were hiring in their supply chain and sourcing department. And so I ended up getting connected um, for a supply chain, I think it was sourcing coordinator position and started interviewing with them. And I remember asking them, what are you doing in your factories overseas? What are your labor standards? And they really didn't have a program. They had nothing in place. And they said, look, you know, we're an organization 
where you can carve out your own position. So if you come in and learn and figure out, you know, where we need you right now, then you can eventually move. And so I'm super grateful to have that kind of openness and being able to then come in and learn the business and learn about the industry and the product creation process and trade agreements and how factories and brands source and really started to realize these brands don't own any of the factories overseas where they're being produced and how these dynamics and relationships worked. And so I'm just really grateful. And I always try to share that with others that the best thing you can do in in terms of implementing sustainability is being able to incorporate that within your current role and responsibility. And not, you know, necessarily say I need a sustainability position specifically carved out, but how do you interweave the two? And and that's something I think will be really cool to see as jobs evolve in their description. So basically, I started out in working in production, sourcing, and then eventually the time came where there was just this huge expansion for Under Armour's collegiate contracts, and they wanted to sign Notre Dame. Notre Dame had strict labor requirements. They were a member of the Fair Labor Association. And so I saw that as a great opportunity to show the business case for creating a sustainability position in order to be able to sign a contract with uh, Notre Dame. And so I did that, presented it to the head of our, at the time, supply chain department and got approved and started reporting into legal and auditing our factories. And that was kind of how I transitioned into that. And I was just so grateful, you know, to be working at such a behemoth of a company and get to see those decisions that were being made. And I realized, like we spoke about on the Green Story panel, that everyone has this different definition of sustainability, you know, whether it means how they recycle or sourcing to a fair trade factory or the materials that go into the fabric. Everyone has this different definition, which is what ultimately led me to the SDGs because I felt like they were inclusive and they were providing a variety of ways in which people who connected in different ways could all be connected under one umbrella. And then, so I was at Under Armour and the way that sustainability was defined there was very, I would say, retroactive instead of proactive, you know, it ran under legal. So it was more of like, let's make sure there's not a PR crisis, as opposed to how is this actually going to drive the company forward and innovation in the future. And there was just different definitions. And so I made the decision to move to the West Coast and work for Prana. And I I wanted to do that because they did look at sustainability as being integrated into every facet of the business. And I wanted to have that experience. And so I just remember it was a really cool uh, change to go from being called like the tree hugger at Under Armour to then all of a sudden I felt like I was learning from everyone else because it was incorporated in everyone's roles and their responsibilities and the culture of the brand and also was coming top down from the leadership. So I really think that that was where I got just a dose of what sustainability means. So I went from people kind of having their opinions in when I was working at Under Armour to actually seeing it play out. And then Prana was purchased by Columbia Sportswear. So it was also then this additional interesting dynamic to see a company be acquired and go from being privately owned to publicly owned. And those dynamics playing out in that, (laughs) I hate to say this, parent-child company relationship. So it was a lot of learnings and takeaways. And that's what I've always tried to do is really just understand how these businesses have operated and why we haven't been able to, you know, make sustainability a core requirement to doing business. And then I was based there for several years. And when I was starting to feel this itch of 
okay, like I know this much about the industry. I know these are the things that are broken. What do I do with myself next? Do I go to another brand? Do I consult? What do I do? And so I did interview with a couple of brands and I just didn't feel like the leadership was really dedicated to disrupting the industry the way I thought that it needed to be disrupted. And so I decided I wanted to start consulting to help other organizations who might not have budget be able to fill some gaps and be able to move forward. And then in doing that, I had this idea while I was uh, working in China and saw just how fantastic hemp as a fiber was that I thought, what if I created a product that solved my own problems? Because at the time I had these musky smelling towels that were grossing me out. And I was like, what if I actually create my own product and created my own brand? And we disrupted from setting the standard by going direct to the customer. And like, we can tell the story. And so that was really where the inspiration for an act came from. And I wanted to create a movement within the brand. I wanted it to be more than just a sustainable product, but about education, about transparency, about getting to, you know, show what this $3.2 trillion industry really looks like. Yeah, that was awesome. I feel like you have such an interesting journey. So thank you for sharing. And there's also a lot to unpack there. And maybe I guess one of the questions that came to my mind as you were talking was just, what do you think were some of the things you learned as you were working at Under Armour and also your second company and then starting your own business? Like, do you think there's concepts that you pulled from your experiences there that have now helped you currently? That's a great question. Um, And I'm actually writing about a piece for an organization called Babes Who Hustle about financing your startup, because I think that was one of my biggest takeaways from working in the public corporation structure was just that I felt like so many things we couldn't do sustainability wise were because the shareholders didn't get to see their return, you know, within a couple of years. And so it really made me want to protect the integrity of what I was building with Enact and still, because I didn't want to have to give pieces of the pie away for capital or make decisions that would eventually be in direct conflict with the ethos of the company. So I felt like there was so many times there was things that we really wanted to do, but there was like, how does this show value to the stakeholder? And some of it, you won't see it within a year. And so I think that was like one of my takeaways is just that component and that it just really depends on how much the leadership is invested in wanting to do something and how they want to do it. And um, you need that buy-in in order to really be able to implement and create that within the organization because there's so many times you meet people, I'm sure you do as well in the industry who are just like on an island who are just super passionate and they care but they don't oversee the other functions of the business that really need to be making those changes and so it can create a lot of tension which i've witnessed between you know people's personal opinions so i felt like that was a common theme because there wasn't you know this shared leadership around what that looks like for the organization you know getting to show the financial case for it And then I feel like there's another one off the tip of my tongue, but um, there's also a lot of issues with marketing, you know, what marketing wants to tell. So there's a lot of brands that I would see who did amazing things that you would never know about because perhaps like their marketing team wasn't in their strategy to communicate. I think there's a lot of fear over talking about certain things. And then the customer might ask about something else that a brand hasn't been able to get to yet. 
and that opens them up and exposes them. So I've seen that happen a lot where then people don't do things because they just don't want to be open or they don't want to uh, risk the exposure. And then all of a sudden the investment to say, okay, we're working with one factory that's fair trade. And then for example, then the customer says, well, why aren't all the factories fair trade? And then, you know, the brand would have to come back and say, well, we do business in 20 countries and the new initiative. And so to set up one country was enough. And the type of investment that requires in your infrastructure is a direct hit in your bottom line. So those are some of the like push pull scenarios that I witnessed. And also um, the leadership, like how long do CEOs stay? So say they are invested in sustainability. They do want to see it out. I think the average CEO stays maybe three years now. So that you have a high turnover and so you're kind of having to constantly rebuild that relationship and that trust whenever you're pushing through those initiatives. I totally agree with you. I see that a lot in bigger companies too. And it's really unfortunate. Like I feel like there's all of these things kind of against them in a way. And then it's really hard to navigate because to your point, like some of them are public and they have to navigate shareholders and the market and all of that stuff. So it is really tricky. I do feel that smaller brands, brands just starting out, do have that competitive advantage to shake things up. So I think it is a really exciting time. I agree. And I think that, and I mentioned this on the Green Story panel, you know, it's just everyone has an opinion about sustainability, but no one has, if you look at sales, that's not an opinion. That's just math. That's, those are facts. And I would just love to see sustainability become less opinionated and more factual. And, you know, which is, again, another reason why I love the SDGs is because they're quantitatively driven. And I think that that helps weed out that initial kind of politics that happen when the topic is brought up and allows us to get to a quicker decision around strategy. So that's something else that I feel like is another frustration. Yeah, totally. And I would love to switch gears a little bit and chat about Enact. So how did you come up with the name? I know that for people that don't know or aren't familiar with your brand, it literally spells out Enact and you have a beautiful story on your website, but I would love for you to share more about the name and just how it came to be and all of that. Totally. And I wish everyone the best of luck in future namings of companies because that was really not fun because so many people have just gone out and buy all of these domains for things they never know are ever going to happen and just to sit on them just in case. And then in addition, they do the same thing with trademarking. So we chose our name, We the People, because first three words of the U.S. Constitution are We the People. So it had this intrinsic connection to U.S. history that we could connect to help prevent it from being correlated and have a negative stigma with marijuana. Because for hemp, there's such a negative stigma around it being connected with marijuana and just the war on drugs. And so I loved that there was this historical component that we could connect it to in addition to including, you know, why we were started. But unfortunately, Everyone had submitted different things and trademarking and we did a quick screen and they said, absolutely not. Don't move forward. And really there, every branding person I talked to said the future is you have to make up your own words. I was like, good grief. So we basically sat in a room and I took like a couple of companies that I was inspired by and how they, and their branding. And I said, look, I really want to create a movement within this name. You know, we are starting with a towel. But I think, you know, we have an opportunity to solve other problems using Earth's natural resources. And that's really the intention of why this was started. 
So how do we create something that gives us room to grow without being stuck in a product category, for example, calling ourselves like the hemp towel company. And I wanted it to be a movement. I wanted every time you use your towel for you to think, hey, look, there's other people out there that are working and advocating to make this world a better place. And so whatever you feel compelled to do, I want you to feel that shared energy and support that we're rooting for you, whether that be picking up a piece of trash or asking somebody out on a date, but just really getting to be your authentic self. So when we hit the name, I think my best friend was like an act, like we were all sitting in the room and all of a sudden you just see everyone kind of, I think there was like four of us, my family and friends just start playing off of that. And they're like, yeah, we can do act one, act two. We can do an event series and we can call it act up. And so it was just really cool to see it come to life. And then as soon as I could, we started putting all of the work in to, to protect it. And so that was how it came to be. Wow, I love that. Yeah, and it's really similar, I think, to other founders' stories because it is so hard to find a name <laughs> nowadays and get the handles and the trademarks. So yeah, I, I love your name. And I think, again, you can do so many things with it and play with it. So it's really awesome. And I would love to hear too, like, what's your goal with Enact? Where do you see it going? What's your dream with the brand? All of that kind of stuff. So I would say with Enact, the goal really was that I couldn't fathom knowing what I knew about the industry and not seeing it move forward while I lived my life on this planet. And so we see the towel has a lot of opportunity in terms of places where it exists. So obviously your personal bath, bathroom, but also there's hotels, there's restaurants, there's hospitals, there's gyms, there's spas, there's a lot of places. And there's really no brand loyalty in regards to where those towels are sourced. So I envisioned being able to create that story by creating a better product, but then also by getting to educate people about how this product was made. And I would love several years down the line, I mean, for us being based here in Florida, we passed legislation for hemp. So there is this opportunity. I really want to do local manufacturing, localized manufacturing, and work with farmers to grow hemp fiber for our product, be able to process it, and then own the manufacturing component. And this is like very Elon Musk, but I'm like, I really want to do like automation, robotics, like how do we create the future of this industry and be able to create local jobs and then move towards that circular economy so that we're manufacturing and thinking about the process and our footprint, but then also we're able to take back when people are done with our product and create something new. And I think that is just comes from, again, seeing this model within the textile industry of it being linear. We design, we don't design for end of life. You know, it's just, it's a make, take, use, disposable um, process. But also we don't think about the impact and the, the resources we're taking during that time. And the fact that most of it is being done all around the world. And then we're shipping to markets that are on the opposite side. So I would say those three takeaways from the industry are really what is pushing the vision. But I, I would say I'm always willing to pivot, but I just want to see this industry stop having the negative impact that it currently has. So whatever it takes for us to 
do that with an NF, that's what I want to do. I love that. And I feel like you're so focused, which is great because I find that a lot of brands kind of want to do everything and do everything perfectly. But I feel like if you just drill down and hunger in kind of on three things like you're doing, you can move the needle more and then do more as you grow. So I think that's really smart. And I also saw on your website that when you first started, you did a Kickstarter. And I know some other brands that are just starting out may also want to do crowdfunding. So I would love for you to talk to us about that process and how you were able to make your Kickstarter a success. Sure. And I also want to include, you know, that for me coming from these, you know, larger brands that you definitely do have more resources. So there is, as a new owner, starting a new company, you have the opportunity to set the standard out of the gate, but also like realizing you are going to have to compromise is so important. So for example, for me, so many people are like, you manufacture in China and we work with an agent there. And so like, of course, coming from larger brand side, you're like, okay, like that's not the ideal relationship. Here's, you know, you want to work directly with the factory. Here's the places that the customer is going to see most friendly. But as a small brand, you have little to no um, negotiating power. And so those are like some of the compromises that you have to make. But I think what's so important is that instead of really trying to do it all is really explaining if you can't and being transparent with the customer so that you don't go crazy trying to make it all happen. And that's just something that I've, I've learned along the way. In regards to Kickstarter, so that's another great mechanism to test the market prior to going and accruing that inventory and then having to sell to it. That being said, I do think that Kickstarter is definitely taken on a life of its own. Like, for example, there's now people have actual budgets for marketing their Kickstarter, um, which we didn't know until like a week and a half in where they were like, oh, you didn't know you're supposed to have a Facebook ad budget to promote your Kickstarter. I was like, no, I thought that's what the Kickstarter was for. <laughs> um, so like there was a lot of like, oh boy moments. But I would say the biggest thing piece of passive advice is that what you want to do prior is because Kickstarter is not going to push you. The only ways like we learn that they promote is if you like hit your goal within five minutes and then you're like, well, why are you promoting them? They hit their goal within five minutes. Like let's help those that haven't. So I think that also I've heard investors say that they also just because you have a successful Kickstarter, it doesn't always mean that indicative that you're going to have a great product because there is a certain type of customer that goes to a Kickstarter, you know, an early adopter that's not necessarily who's in the market. But I would say what I would recommend is that you pull a list of who's in your network. Once you are like, okay, I'm going to do a Kickstarter. How many people do you have on email? How many people do you have on social? How many people are on LinkedIn? And ensure that the goal that you need to make, which you want to make it so that it covers the cost of paying for your inventory, but also any other costs you have. So you have a little bit of a profit that you have enough people to hit that. That was like the best piece of advice that I got. And if you don't have the people, then don't go. Or if you don't know how you're going to get the people. And also definitely include factor in just say free shipping, but include shipping in your price because I broke it out and people despise that. So Kickstarter, you only can do one price. So for example, like if you ship domestically, it's not going to say Selena's buying from Canada. Here's her address. Here's what to pay. You have to pick one set price to ship globally. 
So there's like little tricks like that, that I think feedback we got that people were like, I'd buy it, but like, I don't want to pay this shipping. And you're like, well, we don't really get to choose, you know, like we had to pick one flat rate, but uh, definitely include that and just make sure that whatever you're projecting, you have those people going in and then know I would keep it within a month because it was such an exhausting experience that I wouldn't recommend really prolonging it. Awesome. Yeah, I think those are some really interesting tips. And I feel like crowdfunding can be kind of glamorized because you'll see people hitting their goals and then all of a sudden they have all this, you know, cash injection. But to your point, like it is a lot of work. And I always tell people that because you got to market it. And I totally agree with you. Like they shouldn't really be pushing the people that sold out in five minutes. Like they need to be helping kind of people who haven't. But I mean, that's just the name of the game, I guess. Um, But yeah, I think those tips are really helpful. So thanks for sharing those. And I also saw that, you know, because you're kind of in the towel business right now, you do direct to consumer and also do wholesale accounts and your wholesale accounts are really interesting too. And they kind of make sense for your product. Like you're in retailers, but you're also in hotels and spas. And I would love for you to chat a little bit about how you got your foot in the door with those wholesale accounts. Cause I find that a lot of brands just starting out, they, they kind of have difficulty with that. So if you have any wisdom to share there, I think it would be really appreciated. Of course. And I would say that it's, this is all still a learning process because for me coming from working in the more sports performance outdoor, I thought I knew textiles, but the reality is that each of these wholesale accounts is its own industry and way in which, you know, the purchasing decisions happen on their own. And so it's a huge learning curve for me. I would say a lot of them have been just from people like our customers saying like, hey, I know the owner of this yoga studio, or I know the head of like this boutique hotel. I think you guys should be connected. And I would say they've all been within our local community. So it's not like, you know, I've just gone out and been like, let's check this, this, and this. It was more so like, hey, like we're from Jacksonville. I'm a small business owner. You're a small business owner. I have a product. I think that will be beneficial for you and and your customer and the goals you're looking to achieve. And let's figure something out. And I think that's how we've been able to test so many different markets without going to a trade show or a convention center is it's just really grassroots. And, you know, I went in with the intention of saying, look, we're new. We just want feedback. This is not trying to get you to sign your name somewhere for like a reoccurring contract, but being really open to doing that. And I think that like some of the larger deals probably happen in conventions and trade shows, which we were going to do. Now I'm not going to just because I don't really care to be in that environment per se. For me, I think that in light of COVID, that there's new ways that people can get out there. So if you're looking at certain wholesale markets, finding a trade association that represents them and figuring out what events are going on and reaching out and saying, hey, I would love to discuss speaking at an event. And then you can get more brand exposure without having to maybe have a booth and be like, trucking through because I think that kills me from an environmental footprint is thinking of like having to ship all of these stuff to these places to get exposure. So I think there's some ways digitally now that you can really get in front of industries that you think your product, you know, would make a benefit or be beneficial for without the labor intensive work that it required previously. Yeah, I think that with COVID, everyone's kind of rethinking how they do things. So I love the fact that you mentioned that you're able to now approach it in a more kind of environmentally friendly manner. 
And I'm also curious, and I don't want you to share anything you're not comfortable with, but a lot of brands just starting out, they also kind of juggle between, oh, should I focus on consumer sales or should I focus on getting a retail or a wholesale account? And I guess for you and your brand and you know, everyone's situation is different, but which one do you find you have more success with and which one do you find that just makes a little bit more sense for you now that you're kind of been doing both for a while? I personally love direct to customer because you're creating a direct relationship with the person who's utilizing your product. So for me, that's so important because one, then we know that we can hear feedback directly and we can share our story and know it's being delivered exactly how it was intended. But then there's also this, the beauty of if you can get other people and other organizations and expansion into their customer network, their customer pool base to, to share your story on your behalf. So I think, you know, especially retail is tough right now. So definitely leaning more D to C and online is critical. And it also protects your margin more. So then, you know, boutique, because you can't necessarily, they're going to be taking a profit. And if they have something going on, which I think we've all seen with COVID, then you're going down with them as well. So I think always having, um, there's like three different channels, right? You can go D to C, you can have a distributor, or you can go directly wholesale. And I think being mindful of what your product and brand has an opportunity to do and making sure that you diversify so that if things do happen that you can go like for example prior to covid we were going to be doing boutique hotel contracts which are great because those are reoccurring orders but then now it's like no one's going you know to hotels right now and we don't know when that will pick up or travel in the future so then being able to go back to our d2c channel was great because we had it there available and i think what I'm noticing in the apparel industry in general is, you know, every, so many of these brands are locked in to brick and mortar. And so they're struggling to figure out how do we survive? We've signed these leases on these large bases on real estate. And are we ever going to see this return anytime in the near future? So I think now is the best time to be online and D to C. And I encourage other brands to do that because the cost to getting in front of a customer is the barrier to entry is so low. Whereas, you know, paying for something on Fifth Ave is very high. So I think that's definitely where I recommend. And I think, you know, with competition, it's like until we're all using sustainable fibers and moving, then like it's not competition because we're all moving the industry forward. So that's kind of how I look at that. Yes, totally agree with you. Margins are better. You can control the relationship. So yeah, thank you for sharing. I think it's great to hear from someone else. And, you know, we met again at that panel where we spoke about the UN SDGs. And I think you had a really great way of saying how you use the SDGs in your business. So I would love for you to share with everyone listening. How do you use the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals in your business? Right. So we use the SDGs as our North Star. So one of my partners said this really well. She said, these are our non-financial goals. And so I loved talking about like, here's our financial goals. Here's our non-financial goals. And this is what drives our company forward. And so for me, our first step was working with Green Story as a startup because we can't, you know, I don't have another person to just sit and calculate our impact as a business, but being able to at least calculated on a product side allows us to start to show 
the way that we're making a difference and an impact in the global economy. And so that's like our first step and then moving forward and then identifying these are the SDGs in which we're supporting and creating an impact report and educating our customer on it has really been our strategy. And so it's been really fascinating because so many of our customers are like, what is this? You know, are you B Corp? Are you this? Are you that? And it's like, yeah, there's so many certifications and labels, but really educating and saying, here's what has been globally ratified, quantitatively driven, and has a date that says, look, if we don't focus on these initiatives, then we're not going to be able to meet the needs of the present or of the future. And so that's really how I look at those and define them as, you know, sustainability is survival. It's not this feel good and like exciting thing per se. It's just like if oil was not a depleting resource and it'd be like, let's do oil, right? The whole thing is like changing the negative connotations around like certain industries and terminology that have really taken off and instead saying, what do we need to survive and what's regenerative? And then let's start having those conversations around how do those play into the business and the product creation process and how are we taking those into account? And I just feel like the SDGs so embody that because you're talking about water, you're talking about people, you're talking about all of these different components and they're all interconnected and getting to show them, you know, under one umbrella. Yes, love it. And during the panel, I also loved how you said it's your North Star and I love how you position them as your non-financial goals because I think it is a really important subset of your overall company. Like just because it doesn't directly impact your bottom line or drive the needle, like it's going to kind of like subconsciously or just indirectly as well. So I think they're so important to focus on as well. So I, I think it's great that you always bring them up and you mention it. And we also talked a little bit about greenwashing, and I think this conversation leads quite well into it, but I feel like you and your brand are genuinely doing so much good, which is amazing, but there's other brands out there that aren't doing as well, and they're kind of shouting from the rooftops that they are, and so that's what greenwashing is, essentially. But wondering how you stand out in today's day and age of murky information and lack of transparency and how you combat that. Yeah, greenwashing is, as you and I know, alive and real. And I mean, for us specifically, bamboo towels are our biggest competition. As soon as people see us and they're like, okay, hemp sounds cool, but I have bamboo. How does it compare? And then you're like, oh my gosh, like who created this bamboo marketing? Like, where did that come from? You know, Um, because now we have to explain that bamboo is actually rayon and there's no bamboo in the final product. So therefore you're not even using what you think you're using. It's a chemically derived product. So I blog, I'll write on the website, hey, like, you know, just trying to educate in comparison to like why we're doing what we're doing to help break down that stigma. I think that really we just don't have regulation in the United States that requires the disclosure or an enforcement on the content claims. For like importing product, it says all you have to do is say the last place it was manufactured. You don't have to disclose where the raw materials came from. You don't, you know, there's no one. I forget if I said this on the panel, but like I was in Costco a couple of years ago and I remember seeing this fleece blanket and it had these lambs on them. And I was like, oh, cute. And so I like went and looked at the caring content label and it was like 100% polyester. I was like, who is getting away with this? This is such fault, you know, like it's not even sustainable marketing. It's just like, 
completely not what they're putting an animal-based product on top of something that's synthetic derived. So I feel like we have huge gaps in our products and disclosure and regulation. And so I think that contributes to the greenwashing. And for us, it's just being super transparent and talking about, okay, what are the products you think are sustainable? And we'll tell you why they're not. Also, like instead of using colorways, we say this is undyed and unbleached, and this is undyed and bleached. Because I think that that's another pet peeve of mine is that so many people will be like, this is orange blossom or these like very natural sounding colors, but there's like all chemicals and dyes that like created that. And so I think like really talking about the process and not creating this very appealing luxury visual imagery is another way to break down what people might think is a sustainable attribute to their product but as like actually just a marketing tool for the people to buy. So that's another way that we try to do that. Yeah, the dye industry, it's a whole other topic, I feel. Um, but I, I love how you guys position it. That's actually really cool. Like, I think that's a really unique way to do it. And I think it also educates the consumer too, right? Because they'll see that and they'll be like, oh, I've never seen that before. I wonder what that means. And then they'll kind of do their own research, hopefully. So I think that's a really great way to kind of do it too. Just be like so transparent, be kind of different. And then they'll kind of look into it, which I think is great. Totally. And I will include like, we do get challenged on that because people will say, I want this color. When are you going to have this? Or when are you going to have that? And you're like, okay, I hear you. And like at some point, you know, like I want to play around this week and actually do some natural dyes with indigos. But like, as you know, like the structure of the industry is so big that like you could never do like a natural dye run in a major mill at this time, unless you had that volume. So we can only like play around with it on our own. But I think in some ways you want to always be like the customer is right. But at some point, if you know what you know about the industry and you know, the customer is not able to get to the factory to see this, then you need to be willing and be okay with saying no and helping them understand why you're saying no so that you don't drive yourself crazy trying to meet those demands and compromising your values at the same time. But yeah, the dye industry is nuts and it just drives me crazy when people try to make these colorways sound super sexy and natural when you're doing a bunch of additional processing that has a really negative environmental impact and the customer thinks that they've done something good. And that to me is unacceptable. Yeah, totally. I think that if we feel good doing a purchase, like we actually need to make sure that it is a purchase that's doing good, as cheesy as that sounds, but we just need to make sure. So I think you're doing a really good job of that, which is great. Thank you. And from your years in doing this, what do you think are some of the biggest lessons you've learned? Because we do have quite a few slow fashion founders that listen, and I would love for you to share maybe some of your big takeaways or aha moments. Sure. I think how I kind of knew something was up was that when I was working at Under Armour in production and I was in a factory in San Salvador, El Salvador, and we were like, okay, like we got to meet this fashion show for Dick Sporting Goods and all the kids are wearing these compression alter ego tees and we need to do X, Y, Z. And just like standing there and seeing how this industry was working and just knowing something was wrong in my gut. But like, not knowing what to do about it. And so I feel like there's these moments that are so important that you remember about why you started doing what you're doing. 
and holding on to those because it is a marathon. It's not a sprint in terms of if you're really dedicated to seeing this industry move forward. And I think that, you know, I ended up like doing these other jobs at Under Armour and I just kept thinking like, man, why did that stick out to me? And so I just feel like those are so important because it feels difficult and you're like, how are we going to get out of this? And how are we going to do X, Y, Z is like, Hey, there is like a massive amount of people who don't have a voice and including the planet around this industry. And if I have this privilege of witnessing it, then like, how can I use that to give that back? and not having an ego about it. Because I do think there are some people who really do want to be like, I'm the most sustainable and this, this, and it, it's like becomes a kind of a competitive thing. And it's like, look, if whoever is able to get made well going fair trade and like leading the charge and whatever, we're all progressing forward. Even the people who are doing it just to get ahead on marketing, at least it's like educating that many more people. So. I feel like I kind of went all over the place with this question, but basically just don't forget why you're doing what you're doing and don't get caught up in the hoopla. And just remember that it's still a David versus Goliath in regards to the amount of work that needs to be done and staying focused in the role that you play and putting horse blinders on when you see someone else you think is doing better than you or is able to create this new initiative, just take that and be like, okay, cool. That's awesome. They're going to be educating our customer base about that. Here, I'm going to go do this. Yeah, I love that. And to your point, we're all in this together and we're all driving the needle on the fashion industry together. So put your blinders on, do you. I love that you said it's a marathon, not a sprint, which is so true. And knowing your why is really important too, because it can be difficult and there's definitely ups and downs and challenges, but so long as you remember why you're doing it and the impact that you're having and how we can shift the industry, I think that's something that can really anchor people in and kind of push them through this. Yeah, for sure. And just remembering to take breaks because like for me, I know that I felt like when I witnessed everything and then decided to start an act, I was like, oh my gosh, like we can't stop. Like, here we go. And so um, one of the things on a personal note that I feel like is so important that I'm learning is that taking care of yourself is another way in which you can also promote sustainability and making sure that just because maybe you do have these experiences and you know these whys behind it and you're super driven to get there. But the best thing you can do is by showing like a healthy lifestyle, by showing and actually doing things, maybe not always talking about them, but like having your colleagues or your employees or whoever your customers see you going out and like picking up a plastic bag on your way into a meeting or like not buying everything, but being like, hey, the most sustainable thing you can do is use what you already have. And like really starting to set those precedents as like, and taking care of yourself is another way that people will really start to embody that. Because if they see you doing that in the way that you're able to be content with that. That's another way to drive change without you personally having to like drive it within your organization. Yeah, totally agree with you. I think I always say this, but you can't take care of your to-do list until you take care of yourself. So always make sure that you make room for well-being and self-care and lead by example, right? So I think that's really great that you shared that too. 
Um, so thank you so much for taking the time, Brianna. I think this was awesome. And I would love for you to share how everyone can support Enact and find you. I'll have all your links in the show notes too. But if you want to just do a quick blurb, that would be great. Yeah. So if you would like to reach Enact, uh, our website is www.enact.com. Our social media handle is at Enact Global. And that's consistent along Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. And feel free to, to send us a DM if there's a question you have or you're inspired by something we discussed. And we're always open in, to doing collaborations and, and working together. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for taking the time today. I think you shared a lot of really useful tips for everyone. So thank you for that. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. with Brianna. I learned so much and I hope you did as well. And if you enjoyed today's episode, make sure you take a screenshot of yourself listening to it and then tag at recloseted and at enact global on Instagram to let us know if you liked it. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to our recloseted radio podcasts so new episodes are automatically downloaded when they are released. Additionally, it would really help us and help us spread the sustainable fashion movement if you gave us five stars and left us a really positive rating. That really helps us again get searched and get found. So that would really mean a lot to us if you could take about three to five minutes to do that. Today's episode and together, let's write the harmful fashion industry.